You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter for Brooklyn to the world. It's been a week of increased visibility and conversation around Palestine and the movement for Palestinian justice. This week, we're reflecting on the words of Mariam Barghouti, a writer and activist in Ramallah who sent this voice memo to us last summer, but it still rings true. Miriam Berguti, a Palestinian writer based in Ramallah, occupied Palestine. It was March, and a lockdown was underway. Us Palestinians are accustomed to lockdowns, from the military-imposed curfews ordered by Israel to the checkpoints that randomly close, making movement a challenge. But we were always up to the challenge because we had entire lives to live. As the lockdown started, first schools, then cafes and restaurants, then it was everything. So did the unearthing of our Intifada diaries, the days of the uprisings in the 80s and early 2000s, where the general narrative is about stories of imprisonment, torture, blood, helplessness, grief, loss, but also resilience, community, overcoming, remaining. With that, our collective trauma from days past began to slowly rise. As we remembered the tragic realities, we were also searching for solutions, for moments of overcoming, for the reminder that if we still made it then, and are making it now despite the military-imposed occupation, we can surely make it through a pandemic. We just have to stay home, right? Days and weeks pass by. I begin to realize that the call to prayer is different these days. It is a recitation of Qur'an verses asking God to safeguard us, to support us. Even as someone that does not pray, I found myself at my knees. The only other time I found myself reaching out to God was in an Israeli prison cell in April 2014. I prayed that it would end, that I can see my family and loved ones, that the shackles on my feet are released. This feels a lot like solitary. The lockdown continues, death tolls and infection rates rising. We realize our health sector in Palestine has been so crippled by the occupation that if we didn't flatten the curve, it's devastating for our collective community, but also for our yearning to be a free people. I screamed. A lot. My friends screamed. We cried. We broke down. We had days where we would laugh through screens and phone calls, but mostly, we're still screaming. It's difficult. In trying to minimize leaving the house, I find myself returning to all the tricks my mom used during the Intifada days. Dry your leaves, juke leaves, mint leaves, rosemary, and sage. My mother always told me to be careful with my herbs. It's not a joke, Miriam. They are a medicine, she would emphasize. If your stomach hurts, use sage and avoid the mint. For spinach, grape leaves, green beans, freeze them. But boil the beans first. Also, make sure you have flour and salt. You can do so much with flour. There were so many guidelines, but I kept thinking, Mama got through the curfews with three children and a husband who was banned from entry by Israel. This should be okay. We want to survive, but have you seen what the Israelis are doing? A friend's voice tells me through the phone. It's so terrifying to know that even if, as Palestinians, we manage to do the right things, the fact that we still have an occupation puts the odds even more against us. We have soldiers throwing Palestinian labor workers to the street when they're suspected of having corona. 
They're still carrying out military house raids, demolishing clinics in the Jordan Valley, and settlers are beating up Palestinians who are camping, only to also torch their cars. And then there is Gaza. Dear Gaza, I keep thinking about the smell of the sea when I visited last September. It was disgusting. And then the overcrowded spaces, the yellow water that I couldn't even use to brush my teeth, and a young man telling me that Gaza was ready to be buried, and this was before a pandemic. It's terrifying. There's no time to process, no opportunity to protest, no chance to be together, and we are only human. We're going to get bored and tired and in need of some social interaction. In the Intifada days, it was that social interaction that got us through it, community support and sharing. We don't have that now. What we have is a virus that does not discriminate and a brutal occupation that discriminates far too well and millions of lives wedged between. In Palestine, the pandemic collides with our struggle to live in dignity and peace. It brings out the unreconciled trauma and very real and very terrifying emphasis that our fate is still dictated by Israel, whether we like it or not. And even in the midst of a pandemic, we are not given a break. So we are left disoriented, alert on all fronts, and in need for any win, even if it is successfully drying some mint leaves. You can blow out a candle, but you can't blow out a fire in Brooklyn, USA. As a new administration takes office in the midst of a global pandemic and deep divides, a new generation of Arab activists is expanding its political reach through education and organizing in Brooklyn and beyond. They're pursuing leadership roles, and they're increasing the community's influence about the issues they stand for, whether it's immigration and affordable housing, or vaccine equity and criminal justice reform. Last month, Brick TV and the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs convened a virtual town hall discussion about the biggest challenges facing Arab Americans in the U.S. today, and what the future of activism looks like for the community. Here's host Brian Vines. Hello and welcome to this Be Heard Amplified Town Hall. Onwards, the future of Arab American activism. Now I'd like to introduce you to the four panelists who will be joining today's discussion. Samaya El-Ramaym is a Yemeni-American activist, founder and director of the Women's Empowerment Coalition of New York City. We also have Vetna Monasir, a community organizer and the executive director of the Yemeni American Merchants Association. Yafa Diaz is the lead organizer at the Arab American Association of New York and Mohammed Missouri, the executive director at Jetpack. Thank you all for being here. So before we begin our conversation in earnest, I'd like to take you back to 2017 at a time when activism was very much at the forefront of everyone's minds on the heels of a hotly contested election. You excited? Yeah. Are you excited? Say the people. Yeah, this is the dialect. United. United. We love our We, a bunch of, you know, Arabic women from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, the largest Arabic neighborhood in New York City. Um, we're all going to get on a bus together. We're going to head to D.C. from Brooklyn. My name is Maha Sarsour. I'm March because, as you see, I'm Muslim. 
I'm going to defend myself and my other Muslim sisters in America. My name is Tamir Judah. I'm a Muslim. My whole family is Muslim. And the comments that Donald Trump made early in his campaign about even thinking about putting the ban on Muslim is not right. My name is Hanadi, and yeah, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I am marching for these three right here, <laughs> my children, <laughs> for their future. So we're starting our forward-looking conversation with just that briefest look back at what was 2017. Samaya, you were there. You felt the energy and the pull to get yourself on the bus and make your voice heard at that huge demonstration that we saw. I wonder, looking at that and seeing where we are right now, how would you define what it means to be an Arab American activist right now? You brought me back to 2017. I remember how it was like really hard for us. We were shocked after what Trump, he said about Muslims and how we felt the pain. And we started like try to find ourselves as a Muslim and Arab and organize ourselves and making sure that everyone hear our voice. I feel like now we are more stronger than before, more organized and more bold. And I felt like before we were like still scared, like especially like, you know, Arab people who coming from overseas, especially new immigrants, they didn't know exactly what is their rights in this country and how they can be heard. And if it's that going to affect their visa status or like citizenship, it was really hard in the beginning. And because like after what happened with Trump, I was like just hired as a woman organizer and advocacy instructor. Like, you know, I, I have this energy. I want to do something. I want to educate women. I want to do this and this. And I was like very lucky to be under Linda Sersor uh, supervision and learning from her. Assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you, brothers and sisters. My name is Linda Sarsour, and I am one of the national co-chairs for the Women's March on Washington. I stand here before you, unapologetically Muslim American, unapologetically Palestinian American, Apologetically from Brooklyn, New York. We had this energy. We want to do something. We have to organize our community. And for first time for Arab community to mobilize like four or five buses that day to DC and to have women be in the bus to go to make sure that their voice is going to be heard. And people are going to say, like, no, what, what that happened, that's really crazy. And that was like really the worst nightmare that Arab American went through. And I cannot believe that we are out of this nightmare, but we still have so much work to do and we will not stop. With regard to that work to do, Vetna, I'm looking at you uh, as the director of the Yemeni Americans Merchants Association. I know in 2017, I was walking in Brooklyn and I happened to pass Brooklyn Borough Hall one day and there was a sea of people out there who were making their voices heard as the Yemeni American merchants just shut it down. Allah. 
So same question for you from 2017 till right now, what does it mean to be an Arab American activist now? I'm gonna be very frank. I never thought in my life that I was able to advocate for my community until I felt like I was forced to do so. Going to elected officials or lobbying was something that I never thought was possible in our community because growing up in a very conservative community, um, we didn't have a push uh, voter advocacy or a push to get involved in elections. You know, I was part in 2016 with Hillary Clinton when I was the first Muslim woman to actually join the forces to try to get President Trump out of office. So that was something that our community was not even ready to see women being advocates or advocating on those issues. Um, but I felt I had to as, as a mother of three boys. To me, I don't feel like I only represent the Arab community. I represent all Americans who come from different backgrounds, especially immigrant backgrounds. Going back to what you said about the Yemeni community, that, was, that is why I joined Yama, because I never thought that the Yemeni community would come out in this force for the diversity visas, the Muslim No Ban Act, the war against Yemen. I had to be that voice. I have to push myself to show my children and people abroad and at large that I'm an American too, you know? And again, I'm proud to be a Yemeni American who sees a community that is striving and growing and, and pushing out a voice. I came from the Bronx in New York and you know, Gulf Wars was, you know, we were targeted all the time as a kid. So we were trying to be sheltered and not be too out there. And yeah. now that I can have a voice, I'm, I'm really happy that we can be the voice for the community. Listening to that idea of having a voice, I'm thinking, Mohammed, about the work that you engage in for greater visibility and the role that you have as an activist in 2021. What Fitno is just talking about kind of resonates, right? For me, for instance, I was entering politics, you know, many, many years ago, because I am getting up there in age. <laughs> it's been a while now. You don't want to be, be pigeonholed as, you know, the Muslim activist or the Arab American activist, or even honestly, from my perspective, like the person who they come to to talk about foreign policy issues, right? Because it's always like a reactive thing. But I think after 2017, uh, there definitely was a jolt that's, you know, that's being described here so far in the community. And, and I felt it myself where I felt, you know what, we're not going to be free or safe or, you know, no longer going to be targeted systemically by our own government in a country that we love if we don't organize. And I think also like last summer, what you're seeing, a much more interest in actually being allies against, you know, racial injustice, especially targeting, you know, black Americans. So I think like just like that raised awareness and seeing it be sustained over so many years and knowing that it's probably not going to go away. I think, you know, some of us had concerns that it might after, you know, Joe Biden won. But what I'm seeing is, uh, you know, a sustained effort by many people in the community to actually increase our representation. I saw Yafa, I saw you nodding your head as Mohammed was speaking. I know that you as a lead organizer at the Arab American Association of New York have been doing so much work with getting young people, especially interested in voting and making sure that people are registered and engaged. I wanna turn some of our attention to the most present threat that we are all facing right now as a world, this pandemic and its disparate impacts. Like you hear a lot of stories about the pre-existing conditions and how it's decimated black communities and Latinx folks, but there's been a lot of silent suffering that's been happening in the Arab American community here in Brooklyn. How are you working to combat that 
and all of the other things that are swirling around? Thanks for that question, because it's definitely one of our top priorities to serve our community within the Bay Ridge area or Arab Americans in general. It definitely has been difficult. Uh, we saw a lot of holds during the pandemic for the first three months on folks who needed anything regarding their green card, uh, social security, uh, whether also like EBT food resources, financial assistance, rent, and so at AAANY, we actually never fully really closed. We made sure that we were online available consistently for our community, whether it was advocacy, social services, mental help, um, any type of ESL programming. We made sure we moved it all to the virtual world. And even for folks who didn't know how to use that, we trained them and we led workshops and we made sure we were available. During the first three months, we definitely prioritized a food bank. We collaborated with the city and we were able to get boxes, especially during Ramadan. And then NYIC actually granted us a grant where we were able to give undocumented uh, families a small gift card or a visa card that they can actually use for groceries or their rent or any type of home assistance. During this pandemic, I would say it, it definitely hasn't been easy. We saw the stress on our community, but all we can do is currently be here and consistently be here and show them that we are. Samaya, I know that you actively have been engaged exactly in the same way for the duration of the pandemic. I wonder what you would like people to know about the impact that this pandemic has had on the community. We hear about the pre-existing conditions, but I wonder how you have been seeing the impact and what we can say is a sort of never again moment now that we get a reset after the pandemic. Because like through the pandemic, people, they weren't prepared that's going to happen to them. Many people, they lost their jobs. Many business owners, they lost their business. And also like, you know, people, they couldn't even afford to pay like the rent. It was really hard on them, especially because my organization, it's like in Sunset Park and Bay Ridge in South Brooklyn. Like there are a lot of people who's undocumented, even they didn't uh, get any support from the city was really hard on them. And many parents, they even couldn't support their children in school, like, you know, remotely learning. It was really hard on them. So we were focusing and like, you know, uh, train the parents how like to use the technology, how to use Zoom and how like, you know, to deal with the new norm. And also I want to give a shout out for South Brooklyn Mutual Aid. They had done so much work also with delivery uh, and giving food for the community. Samaya was talking about the struggles of folks who are undocumented and largely left behind by a lot of these relief bills and are still not being made whole again as we march toward some sort of sense of normalcy now. I know you've spoken extensively about this concept of invisible people. So I wonder how you and your membership are reconciling this threat of being frontline workers and essential, while at the same time taking care of folks who are quote unquote invisible. We actually are partnered with the United Bodega of America and the city and the state to vaccinate our small business owners. Um, and that's from our merchants to our owners of poultry. We've actually scheduled hundreds of vaccines for our small business merchants, as well as different um, elderly in the Yemeni community. 
and have them who are undocumented to actually get approved to go there um, so that they're not afraid. So that is something that we're pushing forward. You know, I'm an organizer, so building capacity and having the community volunteer, young children of merchants like myself, helping and educating the community on vaccines, notion in Arabic and English, town halls, educating them why they should get vaccinated, why it's so important to their family. Um, Also learning about small business loans, also pushing out with the city to educate merchants on how to get those loans, how to do accounting. We've gotten closer to the community understanding their problems. We didn't know they didn't know how to get small business loans. We didn't know they didn't understand what vaccines were, like things that we take for granted. I think that shift in focus that you said from like, this is making us realize what's needed in the community to help to fill in the blanks where we didn't know we didn't know until it was in our faces. But Mohammed, I know that your organization has done some work with a far reaching survey that sort of prioritizes and shows us where the community's voices are leaning and what they want to hear and where their concerns are. I wondered if you could share a little bit. I know health was one of the primary concerns even before the world changed on us. Sure. I mean, before that, I just want to say that what you just mentioned and what Vitna was just talking about, I think about the, um, you know, the, the invisible. Because Arab Americans have to check the white box or the Caucasian box on the census, a lot of, you know, official surveys, what happens is that, you know, a lot of the problems that exist within the Arab American community, the way we're disproportionately impacted by COVID, uh, but also by other issues, you know, they're underreported. There have been anecdotal evidence from physicians saying that uh, Arab Americans are disproportionately harmed by COVID because there, there are issues with, with health disparities like hypertension, diabetes, and, and some heart disease. Uh, but there's also the fact that a lot of uh, Arab households, especially, you know, recent migrants, you know, living in multi-general households and therefore being more at risk of actually spreading COVID. But also uh, in terms of, you know, a lot of the new immigrants, obviously, they are essential workers as well. So they've been targeted more than others. But, you know, thankfully, we do now have, again, like a raised awareness about speaking out when we see these things. So when these disproportional impact has happened, we're seeing physicians speak out. We're seeing, you know, Arab American reporters. I don't think, you know, we feel comfortable based on our survey to take the leap that Arab Americans are supporting Medicare for all necessarily in large numbers still. But I do think definitely the the population is trending towards, you know, a different healthcare system that uh, essentially centers affordability much more so than anything else and actually guaranteeing it as a right. Mohammed, you mentioned the idea of whiteness being the default for the census not making space to encompass the full community. I'm just looking at you, Samaya. I wonder if you could talk about some of that impact work that's happening with mutual aid and also this idea of being able to check off who you are on something like the census. We worked actually making sure like that people filled out the census and get counted because it's really important to us as an Arab like to mark that we are Arab and get like since how many Arab are in the city. Well, we were thinking about like a way that we can encourage people to fill out the census application to do voter registration at the same time, because with the pandemic, people, they just like don't want to do anything. They just thinking about how to pay the rent, how to get food. That's all what they were thinking about. But like they didn't think about that All what's happening with us, it's because we didn't fill out the census right 10 years ago. And also we don't vote the right people. 
who can represent us and help us and support us. So we were thinking about a way that we can encourage people at the same time doing mutual aid, helping communities. And we started like announcing, if you're gonna fill out the census with us, you're gonna get two boxes of food instead of one. If you're gonna do like, you know, you're gonna do voter registration with us, same thing, you can get two boxes. And we got like a lot of people who coming uh, to us like to do that because they want extra food. This is a way that you help them at the same time and you encourage them to fill out the census and also do voter registration. So Yafa, one of those things that I'm listening to is the needs were identified, but we need political will and we need political power to demand the resources that the situation calls for. And I know in 2020, by some numbers, 80% of Arab Americans actually showed up to the polls and voted. Tell me why the voting and the representation matters in your eyes, even building on what Samaya was just saying. Just representation in general is so excruciatingly important. I think also after the years that folks have suffered, they realize, like Arab Americans realize, I'm going to go to this poll. I'm not going to start just looking at the bigger picture of like, okay, these two candidates, oh, they're both evil. Uh, we're not going to get anywhere with them. No. They realize that on a local level, because of AAANY and all the education workshops and all of the effort and times and tablings that we've done, that on a local level and on a bigger state and federal level, we do have the power to make the change. And that's why I believe that so many of our folks went out to the polls because not just for themselves and their family, but also for their own country back home and also for their community here, they wanted to make sure they were properly represented and heard. Looking at the landscape in America, there's probably about six major cities that can like claim that they have the largest population of Arab Americans who are living here from like LA, of course, Detroit, all up and down, Chicago, yeah. DC, <laughs> New York. So why haven't we seen those populations transfer into representation? Like the fact that I can name like the four people who are in like Congress or the Senate is yeah. proof that we don't have critical mass here. So. What's the disconnect? How, for all of you, how do we translate those numbers, those voices, and that power into representation in those bodies? And does it even matter? Does it matter that there aren't as many as there can be? Yes. Yes. I just wanted to say an affirmative yes, it matters. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I was, I was, I was going to add to that. Um, organizing the community on identifying voter IDs is so important. You know, Yama, now we have a C3, a C4, and we also have a pack. Um, now that we have the van, uh, we can actually educate the community by knowing who they vote for, why they vote, who doesn't vote, how do we register voters, and identifying who votes in our community, who doesn't, is also helping us on their issue-based policies that we're trying to push, and advocating them when we do lobbying. We have a large community, and the Muslim community is a large voting block for swing votes. And the best way to organize a community is by voter files, voter IDs, engaging the community on surveys, on advocacy work. I just found out the Muslim, Yemeni community, we have so much immigration reform. Uh, we have a lot of criminal justice reform. We have a lot of issues that, you know, by surveying the community and issue-based policies, we were able to have conversations with elected officials. So I think that there is tactics of how do we do this is identifying 
the voters, identifying the community's needs um, and registering voters. I mean, we did the census, we had 138,000 Yemeni Americans. When I looked at the voter files, we're much more than that. Our ethnic model is not representative. My name is Vetna Monasar. That's not a Yemeni name. That's not even a Muslim name. So, you know, my sister's name is Susan. You're not going to find Susan, you know? So <laughs> especially when you're third generation American, you know, our parents are giving us American names. Also learning how to identify the Lebanese community has the same thing. We're also Arab Christian and we right. have some Jewish Arabs. So we have to make sure that when we identify the community, there's different issues for different community parts of our community. We're so diverse. So Mohammed, if I may, can I ask you to expand on your yes? And specifically, I'm really interested in this idea that America woke up the day after the election, the most recent presidential election and said, oh, the Hispanic vote. There is no one Hispanic vote. And as Vetna just illustrated, that broad swath of people who fall under the umbrella of Arab American, how do we even begin to approach what is the Arab American vote? Honestly, that is a really, really tough question. I mean, I will say to your first question about elaborating, yes, I'm happy to elaborate because the represent <laughs> representation matters. It's obviously something that I believe to my core. It's why I do the work that I do. I think when you're looking at, you know, why 80% of Arab Americans voted, which is a pretty high number, obviously, and it's also an increase from years past. I think, you know, Bernie Sanders energized a lot of people across the Arab American community. If you look at the, at least the Democratic primary, he was extremely popular in, in exit polls and, you know, and just surveys being done uh, and, you know, through anecdotal evidence as well. And, and it, a lot of that has to do with his very authentic style of like politicking, which I think is very unusual. I mean, I can tell you that in the past, trying to get people to vote in our community, and this is, you know, I'm not going to paint with a wide brush here, but like, I will say like anecdotal stories, it's like, you know, you'll ask someone to do that, especially people who are immigrants, first generation Americans, and then you'll get the answer, at least from Arab Americans, right? Like I've heard that like my entire life, they're all thieves, right? Like all politicians, because that's like what they associate with politics from back home. I don't get the same response anymore. Because you saw this stark, stark difference, right, between like Donald Trump and I mean, first, I would say it was Bernie, but like people definitely got around to accepting that Joe Biden is not the same <laughs> as Donald Trump. I think that was a huge shift. And thankfully, it's being backed by the policy changes that we've seen so far. I mean, it's still early, but some of the initiatives are very encouraging, not so much on foreign policy and immigration yet. But on domestic issues, economic justice, you know, some of these things, labor rights, uh, voting rights, even with H.R. 1, we're seeing, you know, the administration follow through with some of their promises, primarily because they're pushed by, by the House in Congress. And who's doing the pushing? Who are some of the biggest voices? You have Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and, you know, Ayanna Presley. Those are some of the biggest voices for some of these policies. And... The truth is like that some of these people, none of them, I would say, ran on the idea of like, oh, here's my identity. That's why I'm running. Right. But a lot of what they're running on, a lot of the things they fight for, it's informed by how they grew up. It's informed by their lives. And that's why representation does matter. I mean, there is nothing more effective than an Arab American reaching out to an Arab American or, you know, a Latinx person reaching out to a Latinx person to say, hey, this is why it matters, because you can speak about it from a very personal perspective for any organization that really cares about getting out the vote from an underrepresented group, you need to make sure that you hire people who look like the people you're trying to reach and who sound like them and who understand them. 
to your point about representation. I have been working for Arab American Association, like at that time when Father K ran for the office. I saw how the Arab community in South Brooklyn were like, you know, energized to see an Arab man, the first Arab American Palestinian who's running for the office, who is going to represent them. And I remember how people, they were really energized when I volunteer. We registered more than 1,200 people to vote, like in within a month. Because the people, they were like, yes, we want to see an Arab who's like, you know, representing us, listening to us. And I felt that it's really matter and it's really important for Arab community to see someone who looks like them and have been through a lot like them. They, and he understand the struggle and the challenge that face Arab community. And this is how we, I, I actually founded Union of Arab Women. It's women from our district who cares about like the future of their children and how they can advocate for the future because we are as a people of color under attack, whether you are Muslim or not Muslim. So how we can build this coalition, how we can be more strong and powerful, how we can move forward and build this future for us because we all living in the same district. We have like, you know, Latino, Chinese and Arab and also black American, and we do not get a chance to get to meet each other. We meet each other, it's not to meet, to work with each other, mm -hmm. to get to know each other, to get to think about our future together, because we all having the same struggle, the same problems and the same challenges, and we should work together. Well, speaking about that future, I know that Vedna Solidarity work has been important between uh, Yemeni bodega owners and folks who are Latinx as well, breaking down some of those barriers. I wonder, where's the fire now? How do we keep that same spark to make sure that we push the needle further for the next four years because the work isn't over just because that person isn't in the office anymore. I would like for everyone to be able to walk away with that same sense of urgency and spark and say, where are we now and how do we keep going and not lose momentum? We're going to end it, I guess, with visible. We want to be visible by different routes from lobbying to rallying to calling your elected officials, to educating members on town halls, to register the voters, to getting all that engagement and being visible and sound. I think that is the move that we want to push. You know, we work greatly with the, the Hispanic community, with the bodega owners, and we have a, a, a sisterhood and brotherhood together. I'm in the fight for merchant services. We can also do this on a platform, on a political platform. It's new for us. Mohammed said the trust of leaders and internationally when they're coming from places that have dictators still having that trust issue. I think we are in a point in our lives in the community that we trust each other. Yafa, I know that you are one of those people who's been knocking on the doors, who's been walking in the streets, who's been organizing. How do you make sure that people don't just say, oh, Trump is out, you know, I can take my ball and go home now, things are better. Like, how do you keep them focused? Through our youth. So our youth program is so amazing and they're so empowering. And I never used to be this active when I was young, but times have changed and they don't stay quiet. Our youth have been participating in so much civic engagement through the women and our children. We've discovered that we've made a bigger impact in our community. Those young people always put me to shame. I just feel like the oldest old guy, but Muhammad, 
what do you see us using the fire for that can really impact and change the community move forward in the next two, 10 and beyond using that young energy? To Yafa's point about youth and, and women leading this charge in our community, right? It's, it's really why I have such hopes. I mean, when I started doing this work a couple of years ago, like this very specific work to, our, you know, increasing uh, Muslim representation and, and BIPOC representation, in my mind, it was a 20 year project. I mean, you said earlier, you know, you only have one Arab right now, I think, American in Congress, right? And it, it, that is a really small number, of course. But what we're seeing down ballot, having Colorado elect its first Arab-American state legislator, in, in, you know, in Iman Joda, which is Palestinian-American, and having Indiana, of all places, elect, you know, its first Arab-American Muslim man if, to their state senate. Uh, in Fadi Kadura, like you've got three Lebanese, you know, Americans running for mayor in Dearborn. I was concerned about, you know, what's going to happen right after Joe Biden gets elected. What you're seeing, though, which which removes some of that concern is the women and the youth running things. But also they now see the connection between policy changes in the United States and let's say foreign policy changes. Their people are finally seeing those connection points, which has been a long time coming. It's our job, all of us here, you know, and other people who are now working in these different organizing communities to make sure that people stay energized. And I'm pretty confident that we're going to do it. So in the service of staying energized, I'm going to ask in four words or less, I'm looking at you, Vetna. I want you to describe to me the short answer for what activism has to look like to be relevant from now for the foreseeable future. I was trying to say five, but I'm, you said four. So I'm Hit me with you. five. You're first. Yeah, okay. We have to be visible. We have to be visible. Samaya. Bold and visible. Yafa. We need to stop being scared. Speak up. Mohammed, bring us home. I'm going to say loud, unapologetic. All right. That's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the time and the thought that you put into this and the work that you do every day that delivered you here. We really appreciate you. Thank you for taking part in this Be Heard Amplified Town Hall. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Harrell Palmer. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shireen Barri. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Ayimi Sato. With help this week from Roe Johnson, Trianka Ray, Amanda Harrington, Eileen Aria Reyes, Brian Vines, Anna Luet, the Brooklyn Nomads, and the whole Be Heard Town Hall production team. Check the show notes for a link to the full video version of Onwards, the future of Arab American activism, a hashtag Be Heard Amplified Town Hall. If you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on our podcast, check the show's notes for a link to our guide on recording a voice memo on your mobile phone and sending it to us on the internet. If you like what you hear or think we missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe. And follow at Brick TV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit www.brickartsmedia.org radio.